Mark chapter 12 for tonight. Last week, as we came to the end of Mark chapter 11, you may recall that the authority of Jesus had come into question by the chief priests. And I want to start back there in Mark chapter 11, verse 27. Let's pick it up there so we can roll on into chapter 12 with the sensibility of what's happening here at this season in Jesus' ministry. So beginning in chapter 11, verse 27. They came again to Jerusalem, and as He was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to Him and began saying to Him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do these things? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, and you answer Me. And then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John, that is John the Baptist, was John's baptism from heaven or from men? Answer me, he says. Well, they began reasoning among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he will then say, why did you not believe him? But, shall we say from men? (laughs) For they were afraid of the people, for everyone considered John to have been a real prophet. Answering Jesus, they said, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Now, I have to pull back a little bit when I read that story because my initial reaction to it is a human reaction. I think in human terms as I see Jesus pull this one off. I think as a man, as a human being, He's just dismissed them outright. Marvelously, wonderfully, they come with, you know, this question, and Jesus just dismisses them. But that's not what's going on. And sometimes we have to pause in our flesh and say, okay, wait a minute, I know how I would be thinking if I was doing this. But what is Jesus thinking? And what what conforms to his nature? Help me understand, Jesus, what are you doing here? And I don't believe Jesus is playing games here at all. Ironically, if they were able to answer Jesus' question correctly, then they would have had the answer to their question. What do you mean? If they had answered that the baptism of John was from heaven, that's the same answer to the question, by what authority do you do these things? By heavenly authority. So if they would answer honestly and correctly Jesus' question to them, they would have had the answer to their question, To Jesus, are you with me there? Both John's baptism and Jesus' authority are were from heaven. So the same answer to both questions. And we need to keep this in mind, especially as we enter into chapter 12 tonight, for two specific reasons. Number one, recognize this. And it's important because it kind of spun me around in my thinking this week. Jesus was never dismissive. Jesus was never dismissive. Okay, he didn't, he didn't cut people off at the knees and then just walk away. I always kind of read this that way. I'll ask you a question, knowing they couldn't answer the question, and when they couldn't, he says, whatever. That would be my way of doing it. That is not Jesus' way of doing it. How do you know this, Rick? Well, because continuing on into Mark chapter 12, he begins to teach them. He doesn't walk away. He doesn't dismiss them. He takes them to another level. He truly looks into their hearts, the hearts of the chief priests, who he knows are hard, but he looks into their hearts with a desire to draw out faith, if there be any faith there. He's not dismissive. 
He's going to reach back, actually, and begin teaching them from an old parable. A parable very familiar to the Jewish people, as we'll see in just a moment. So Jesus is not dismissive. He's directive. He takes their doubts, He takes their questions, He takes their scrutiny, and He turns it around and He redirects them. He goes straight to the heart of the issue. And here's the thing you need to understand. When a person comes to Jesus, whoever it might be, honestly asking questions, Jesus will not dismiss them. But guess what? When a person comes to Jesus dishonestly asking questions, He still does not dismiss them. He's still looking for some shred of possibility that the person's heart might turn toward Him. He's never glib. He's never flippant. He always gives faith a chance. And truly, that's all we're saying. Is give faith a chance. For you John Lennon fans of old, all we are saying is give faith a chance. (laughs) Do you ever feel like just dismissing the doubter in your life? How many times have you, how many times have I dismissed someone outright because I knew the only reason they were asking the question they were asking was to try and disprove what I believed and so I dismiss. (laughs) Jesus never does. And I had to really think about that this week, that it is not our call to dismiss the doubters, it is our call, and we talked about this on Sunday, to direct the doubters. To redirect the question. If the question is asked in doubt, redirect to eternity. Because everyone has that sense of eternity in their hearts, right? If the question comes from doubt, redirect to God. Everyone somewhere deep inside believes that there's a God, believes that there is greater. And this is the truth we need to grasp. Just redirect. But do not dismiss. Jesus Jesus knew when a person's heart was ripe. Even if we don't know, we don't dismiss. Even His critics, even His opponents, even His enemies were not just dismissed out of hand. Even Judas, on the night of the betrayal, was not dismissed by Jesus, discounted, John chapter 13, verse 1 tells us He loved them to the end. And Judas was one of them that He loved to the end. That's how Jesus thinks and it's very different than how Pastor Rick thinks. Jesus was not dismissive. Secondly, we need to understand something that's going on here as we enter into chapter 12. And in fact, I believe it frames the entire teaching for tonight. Jesus was not defective. What do you mean? I think the most important thing to recognize as we come into chapter 12 is it is the week before Passover. That's where we're at now in Jesus' ministry. We've gone across three years of ministry in a very short amount of time here in the book of Mark. He moves us through quickly as we knew that He would. But now we come to chapter 12. It's the last week. He's in Jerusalem. He will not leave Jerusalem alive. Well, He'll go just outside the city gates alive and there He will be crucified. And during this last week, something important was going on. It was Passover week. A week of great festivity. A week of great appreciation. A week truly of thanksgiving to God looking back to that time of His deliverance from Egypt. And that deliverance that was signified in the Passover land that God passed over the people of Israel as they put that blood on the lintel and the doorpost of the homes. God passed over, saving them and bringing them out of Egypt and into the promised land. Passover. 
But according to Exodus chapter 12, verses 3, 4, 5, and 6, Exodus chapter 12, God required a lamb to be selected in every household in Israel. Each household select a lamb. They had to select that lamb on the 10th of Nisan, the 10th day of the month, and take the lamb then into their homes, literally, like a pet. They would care for it. They would look after it from the 10th until the 14th. And on the 14th, they would take that lamb to the temple where it would be sacrificed as the Passover lamb. Why? What's going on between the 10th and the 14th? Inspection. Scrutiny. The people were to carefully inspect the lamb for any flaws, any spots, any defects. And that is exactly what is going on with Christ our Passover. Jesus the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. In this last week, He is being scrutinized. He is being inspected. He is being examined by the priests and the Pharisees. They begin this entire parade starting in verse 27 of chapter 11 and running all the way through chapter 12. There is a parade of inspectors. It's just one after the other after the other. And Mark makes this very clear. They're scrutinizing Jesus, questioning Jesus, confronting Jesus, examining Jesus, looking for flaws, spots, imperfections, defects. And by the time we get done tonight, you will see what they saw. He was flawless. He was perfect. They could find no fault in Him as hard as they tried. He was just too perfect. Jesus was not dismissive and gang. Jesus was not defective. Peter would write later, 1 Peter chapter 1, You were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers. You were redeemed with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Peter writes, 1 Peter 8, 1, 18 and 19. Peter says this. Peter, the the apostle likely on whom teaching the Gospel of Mark was based. And so we go into this. It is the parade of the inspectors. The first inspectors being the chief priests. They now come out to meet Jesus. They ask Him a question of His authority. Authority was a big deal to the priests. And so they're drilling Him about His authority. He redirects the question. They can't answer it. So he continues to speak to and to try to draw something out of these chief priests. Watch this. He directs them back to Isaiah. Chapter 12, verse 1. He began to speak to them in parables, saying, A man planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a vat under the wine press and built a tower and rented it out to the vine growers and went on a journey. Oh, the chief priests would have known. Oh, they might be thinking in their heads, it's the parable of the vineyard, Isaiah chapter 5. We know this parable. We're familiar with this. That's what he's drawing off of. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1. Let me sing now for my well-beloved a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around, removed its stones, and he planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in the middle of it and also hewed out a wine vat in it and then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it only produced worthless ones. Jesus launches into this parable, this famous well-known parable of Isaiah, the parable of the vineyard, And the Jewish leaders knew immediately who the vineyard was. It was them. 
The vineyard was the Jewish people. The vineyard was Israel. The tower in the middle of the vineyard, a picture of Jerusalem, towering above the rest of Israel as the focal point, God's city. And the worthless grapes of Isaiah's prophecy, Jesus now brings to light the worthless grapes are the fruit of Israel. The worthless grapes. The language is very interesting back in Isaiah chapter 5 when he talks about expecting it to produce good grapes. That word in the Hebrew is enab. Enab just meaning a good, sweet, wonderful grape. Ever since we've been on this new diet, I love grapes. Absolutely love grapes because I can't have chocolate and I can't have candy. But man, I can have grapes. Nature's candy. And the grapes that I love are those big, thick ones. You know when you bite into them and they're, they're a little tough but the juice just squirts throughout your mouth. It's wonderful. It's marvelous. I know I'm obsessing. <laughs> That's the kind of grape we're talking about. Enob. A bushel of enob. Grapes. Good grapes. But then he says this vineyard that God expected to produce good grapes produced worthless ones. And I love the word for worthless ones. It's bayushim. Bayushim in the Hebrew literally is translated stink berries. Isn't that great? He expected it to produce beautiful, luscious grapes and it produced stink berries. Worthless, disgusting. The fruit of Israel literally stunk to high heaven. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 7, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his delightful plant. Thus he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. He looked for righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. And so Jesus pulls this parable out. The chief priests know he is talking about them. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He begins to expand this parable, and he takes it to a whole new level. Verse 2. At the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers in order to receive some of the produce of the vineyards from the vine growers. They took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent another slave, and they wounded him in the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another slave, and that one they killed. And so, with many others, beating some and killing others. And you know what Jesus describes here? Is the remarkable patience of the Lord. What landowner would send his slave to those who are renting out the land and receive back that slave beaten up and send another slave? Or if he would send another slave... What landowner would have that slave come back to him with his head bashed and send yet another slave? And take it a step further. What landowner would send to the renters of his land one slave after another after another and finally say, well, I'll send my son? How absolutely ridiculous. Why would you do that? Only for patience. Only the patience of the Lord. And the picture here is absolutely stunning. How many slaves, how many bond servants did God send to His vineyard, Israel? Well, just based on those we know directly from Scripture, before the exile, so the pre-exilic bond servants would include Elijah, Obadiah, Elisha, Joel, Jonah, Amos, Hosea, Micah, Jeremiah, Nahum, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah. Twelve prophets sent to Israel, one after another, 
to draw the people back to their God. Twelve of them. Not even including going back as far as Moses or talking about Samuel. Or even talking about some of the judges through whom God would prophesy. Just talking about these guys. Twelve guys. Two prophets were sent while they were in exile. Ezekiel and Daniel. Who both would prophesy from Babylon. Now we're up to 14 prophets. How about the post-exilic prophets? Four more guys. Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, and last but not the least, John the Baptist. Who was, if you didn't realize this, the last of the Hebrew prophets. The last of the Old Testament prophets was John. He was part of that group. So a total count, if I'm counting correctly, is 18 different bondservants were sent to this vineyard. Over many, many countless years to try and draw out the fruit of the vineyard. To collect on what was rightfully the Lord's. But after those 18, he goes one better. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 says, God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in His Son. And the stunning reality of this parable is even as Jesus is telling the parable, it is happening before their very eyes. Verse 6, He had one more to send, a beloved Son. And He sent Him last of all to them, saying, They will respect My Son. But those vine growers said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him, and they killed him, and threw him out of the vineyard. Jesus says, what will the owner of the vineyard do? (laughs) He will come and destroy the vine growers, and will give the vineyard to others. Have you not even read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they, the chief priests, were seeking to seize Him. Yet they feared the people, for they understood that He spoke the parable against them, and so they left Him and went away. What does it mean they were seeking to seize Him? It means they were seething with anger. As he told this parable, they knew it was an absolute indictment of their own leadership. And they were just, I mean, you could just imagine fire in the eyes of these chief priests as they're hearing this parable told, as all the people are gathering around, and it's like right before Jerusalem and everybody, they're being revealed. And they are absolutely incensed, and they go away. Jesus did not dismiss them, they left on their own. They would not hear another word from Him. But Jesus does something marvelous here. He combines Isaiah's parable of the vineyard with the grand finale of the great Hallel Psalms, Psalm 118. He reaches back and He pulls up Psalm 118. The Psalm of Triumph. These verses, Psalm 118.22. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Now there are many things we can say about this, and we have in previous studies. But I just want to say this one thing and point out again. This parable that Jesus tells is a timeline of tolerance. It's a timeline of tolerance from beginning to end. It is a chronology of commitment of God both to His plan and to His people that He would wait that long, that He would be that patient, that long-suffering as the people drove out prophet after prophet. And we need to think about it that way. These were bondservants of the Lord God that were being beaten up. 
stoned, sawn in half, abused. These were God's men who He sent, who He loved. And yet, He sent one after another, culminating in sending Jesus Himself. Before there is ever any judgment, there is always the long-suffering patience of God. And we've got to learn to see that for what it is. Our world doesn't get that. Our world today, people will say things, well, like, I, I just can't believe in a judgmental God. Okay, a God who has just given us 2,000 years of grace is not a judgmental God. 2,000 years. Well, he hasn't come yet. Yeah, because of you, dude. (laughs) And because of me. Because he is so patient. You realize that every breath you take is one more moment for us to get right with him. It's one more drop of grace. And that is our God. And the picture of the prophets culminating all the way to Jesus is just that picture. God is so loving and so caring, first for His people Israel, and also for the world, that He waits that people might be saved. Peter says in 2 Peter 3.9, The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish. Let me just ask you, does that disclude anyone? God doesn't want any to perish, but for all to come to repentance, even those chief priests. It was not Jesus' intention to dismiss them, it was His intention to deliver them, but they would not be delivered. They wouldn't turn to Him. His dealings with Israel proves the patience of His character. That is what God is all about. Patiently waiting. Patiently giving every opportunity. I want you to understand this too. The the context of this, it makes sense if you look at it culturally. He brought them into the land, right? Renting it out to them as vine growers, and that would often happen. And there they remained for several hundred years. And by the way, because of uncertain documentation back in the day, anyone who had use of a plot of land for three years was always assumed to be the owner of that land if the original owner could not produce a title deed. So in the parable, when they say, hey, this is his son, let's kill him and get him out here and we'll inherit the land, it would make sense in context that if a a, a renter could hang on to that land just a little longer and he knows that the landowner doesn't have a title deed, he can ultimately own the land. It can be his. And this was the thinking of the chief priests. They were owning the land as though it were theirs, as though there wasn't a legitimate title deed out there somewhere. And the reality is, the title deed sat right in their hands. The title deed was Torah law. The Hebrew Scriptures proved positive that God was the owner of the land. He lent it to them, rented it to them for a time if they would stay in covenant with Him. But if they violate that covenant, out they go. Interesting. He sent prophet after rejected prophet to receive the fruit of their of the land. The Hebrew writer, Hebrews 11.37, tells us they were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated. And I love this verse, men of whom the world was not worthy. The people lost the land for a time in 586 B.C. Dragged off into Babylonian captivity for 70 years. But you know what's interesting? The land was not repopulated by new renters during that time. 
God kept the land fallow. He allowed it to have 70 years of Sabbath rest while the people were in Babylon because God was committed to bringing them back again and giving them rental once again of the land. After they came back, more prophets were sent and mistreated. And finally, God stopped talking. What they call the silent years between the Testaments. And God waited. And then He sent His Son. And as Jesus tells this parable, they are about to fulfill it. They are about to kill Him and throw Him out of the vineyard. I read this and I wonder in our own culture, in our own country, how much God should put up with. How long should He wait? Because the truth is, He will not restrain His wrath and His judgment forever. There is judgment. We saw it in AD 70. 35, 40 years after Jesus told this very parable, the renters were kicked out of the land for good. An amazing, stunning judgment as the vineyard was given over to others. Verse 9 says, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. And that's exactly what happened. The vine growers were destroyed. Jerusalem raised to the ground, burned to a heap. The land overrun. The people driven out into complete complete dispersion. And Jesus said in Matthew 21.43, Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing what? The fruit of it. I planted you as a choice vine, you gave me stink berries. And so I'm going to give this over to a people who will produce the fruit of it. Now, careful, because some people tap Matthew 21.43 saying the kingdom will be taken from you and given to others, and they say that's proof positive of replacement theology. Israel blew it, so they're replaced with the church, and that's the deal. And the question I ask is, what makes us think we're any different than Israel? What arrogance to think that we are better than. The only difference between you and me and the people of Israel originally is that we have received grace by faith. We have remarkably, wonderfully somehow realized through faith that I believe God gave us in the first place that His grace is for us. And so we're saved by grace, accepting His gift. But don't ever forget this, the land, the actual land, the dirt, the location of Israel itself, Israel today, that land is His And even our season to bear fruit is a limited amount of time. We're at the end of it, gang. I'm absolutely convinced of this. I look at Scripture. I look at the world around us. I listen to Jesus say, Luke 21, 24, Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. What is He saying? There's an end. There is a fulfillment date. It's on the calendar. Father knows. I'm not going to tell you. I don't know. The angels don't know. But God knows. And He has that day set in stone. And that day is coming. The time of the fulfillment of the times of the Gentiles. My friends, we're already seeing that fulfillment taking place. We are already seeing the land being returned to its original renters. That alone should stun us into recognizing we are at the end of the end 
of the last days. And the church will not be here much longer. Hallelujah. So, exit the chief priests, send in the clowns. Verse 13. (laughs) Then they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to him in order to trap him in a statement. Who is they? In verse 13. It's the chief priests. Okay? So recognize that. They go away incensed and angry and frustrated, and now they begin to consult with the other guys. And the Pharisees and the Herodians, they hatch a plot. They figure, since the priest can't catch him authoritatively, we'll send in the bizarre alliance. (laughs) And we've talked about these guys before. The Pharisees and Herodians should not be connected. They hated each other until they got a common enemy in Jesus. The Pharisees were the religious guys. The, The Herodians were the political guys. And they were connected by a common threat in this Galilean wonder. Verse 14, they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and defer to no one. For you are not partial in any way, but teach the way of God in truth. Watch out for the flatterers. (laughs) Be careful of flattery. Is it lawful to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? Ding, 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 ding. They just hit the hot button issue. Of the day, taxes. How little the world has changed. (laughs) Even this week, as our government is talking about the fiscal cliff, and whether taxes ought to be raised or taxes ought to be decreased, and and the arguments going on there, it is amazing. This this is nothing new, gang. This is going on 2,000 years ago, and the burden of Roman taxation was heavy on the backs of the Jewish people. All you had to do to rile up a Jewish person in Judah was say, you know, I'm just not sure we're paying Rome enough. I think we ought to increase. And so the Pharisees and the Herodians, they come in. Roman taxation on Judea was imposed in three different ways, three taxes. Number one, the income tax. The income tax may not sound too bad. It was 1% of gross income. Every single person was required to pay 1% of their gross income directly to Rome. 1%. Eh. The second was the poll tax. The poll tax was paid by men from age 12 to 65 and women from age 14 to 65, and the cost was one denarius a year. What's a denarius? A day's wage. Again, eh, okay, I give one day of work a year and I, boy, I would be okay with that in America. Take a day, just one. But that's on top of the 1% of gross income. And then number three was the ground tax. What's that? 10% of all grain that was grown in Israel, in, in Judea and Samaria, went to Rome. 10%. 20% of all wine and fruit went to Rome. Now, this was on top of the poll tax. It was on top of the income tax. And on top of all that, you've got the tax men. Okay? George Harrison wrote a song about the tax men. The tax guys who came along. Matthew was one of those. And they could add on anything they wanted and oftentimes ripped off their own people because that's how they made their income. On top of that, the Jewish people still owed all of the taxes required by Levitical law. 
Taxes to the temple. Taxes to the chief priests and the Levites. Taxes to be in the land. And those taxes would amount to 20-25% of income. A lot of heaviness. There's one more thing that you've got to add on top of this. And that was the principle even more than the payment because the Jewish people knew this. The taxes went straight into the coffers of the emperor of Rome. Why? Because he was Rome's God. So my money is now going to their God. Let me put that in more uh, immediate terms for you. Imagine your taxes going to Iran's Ayatollah. Now how do you feel about paying taxes? That it's not coming back to you at all. It's not going into the good of the land or the good of the country at all. It's going over to this guy who proclaims himself to be God in direct defiance of your God. And they had to pay these taxes. So it was a hot-button issue. And if Jesus responded to the question, if Jesus said, pay your taxes, oh, the Pharisees could label him a friend of Rome. That's easy. The lower, the middle class, these folks would be incensed at Jesus. He would lose all of his support. And the story's over. If Jesus turns around and says, don't pay your taxes, well, the Herodians would nab him as a tax dodger and an insurrectionist. Anyway, Jesus answers, he's in trouble. Pay the taxes or don't pay them. Anyway, he's going to be burned here. Or so they think, verse 15. So shall we pay or shall we not pay? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why are you testing me? (laughs) Bring me a denarius to look at. So they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were amazed at him. Well, cut my legs off and call me shorty. How does he keep getting out of this stuff? Where does this... It's amazing. I love what David uh, Grusick says about this. He says, In the answer of Jesus, God is glorified, Caesar is satisfied, the people are edified, and his critics are stupefied. (laughs) It's just brilliant. One of the true joys of going through the Gospels is just watching Jesus do His thing. You just can't find fault in Him. You cannot trip Him up. And He lays it out. And this comes directly from His heart. See, that's the thing. It's not just that Jesus is good at playing games. It's that Jesus' heart is so absolutely pure, you cannot find fault. It's just not there. In another place, uh, Matthew 6, verse 24, Jesus said, No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. And so it makes perfect sense that Jesus would say, give Caesar what belongs to him, and give God what belongs to him. Well, what belongs to God? Everything. Everything. All that you are. All that you have. Every ounce of provision in your life is his. We're just renters. We're just leasing these bodies. We're just leasing this world. He is the owner of all things. So give to God what is God's. Everything. Including your heart. By the way, did you notice Jesus had to ask for a denarius? 
What does that tell you? It means he didn't have a penny to his pocket. It means Jesus was penniless, at least in this moment. And we look throughout his whole teaching, his whole ministry, and we recognize Jesus never relied on wealth. He didn't have anything. He didn't have a house. Jesus was a homeless man. He didn't have any money. Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Right? Even the foxes have a hole and the birds have a nest. What did Jesus have? The next rock in the next town? Jesus had nothing. And because of that, you can know this. He speaks with absolute integrity and legitimacy when he says in Matthew 6.31, Don't worry saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, for your Heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. That wasn't just preaching. That was lifestyle for Jesus. Don't worry about it. Oh, come on. Are you serious? Watch me. He never worried. He says, seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. All these things will be added to you. Don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. So gang, you can trust Him because that's how He lived His life. And once again, we see Jesus living in such a way that what He teaches aligns perfectly with what He does. And He never asked you or me to do anything He wasn't willing to do first. So when He says, trust the Lord... Believe Him. Don't stress out about money, but seek His kingdom first. He knows He's going to take care of you. He walked it out Himself. One more thought about this. When Jesus asked for denarius, He asked whose image was on it. And it was Caesar's image. The question for you and for me is whose image is on you? With whose image have you been stamped? Genesis 1.27 tells us God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. So it's real easy to render to God what is God's because you have the stamp of the divine. You have been stamped with the image of God. And so you and I, we belong to Him. Exit the Pharisees and the Herodians. Enter a sad lot. Verse 18, some Sadducees who say there is no resurrection, which is why they were sad, you see. They came to Jesus. You know, it's just something we church people get a tickle out of. (laughs) They came to Jesus and they began questioning Him. Now, before we get to their question, the Sadducees were the religious power brokers of the day. We talk a lot about the Pharisees. The Sadducees had the seat of power in Jerusalem. Maybe you didn't know this. The Sadducees held the office of high priest. Caiaphas was a Sadducee. The 24 chief priests were all Sadducees at Jesus' day. The majority of the 70 in the Sanhedrin were all Sadducees as well. And that is incredibly significant because the Sadducees were strict conservative legalists to the point that they believed only in the Torah as divinely given. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, that's it. That's from God. Everything else is suspect. All of the prophets, all of the prophets would be nice devotional reading, but not necessarily from God, according to the Sadducees. In addition to that, the Sadducees relied on 
No prophetic word, no oral tradition, so they didn't trust the word of the rabbis. I don't have a problem with that so much. But the Sadducees rejected the supernatural. Les would have hated these guys. The Sadducees rejected miracles. The Sadducees rejected the existence of angels. The Sadducees rejected the resurrection. And gang, there are church people who are walking that line today. Who reject the supernatural. Who reject the miraculous. Who reject the resurrection. It's right there. Well, I don't believe God moves supernaturally today like He did back in those days. Do you believe He's going to resurrect you? Then guess what? You believe He moves supernaturally. Do you believe in angels? That they exist? And if you don't, you better check Jesus' teaching but he, because He taught they did. If you believe that angels exist, you believe in the supernatural. God is moving. God is supernatural. And God is a miracle-working God. The Sadducees didn't buy any of that. And that's part of their problem, as we will see. They came to Him and they began questioning Him. Verse 19. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves behind a wife and leaves no child, his brother should marry the wife and raise up children to his brother. And that's true. Deuteronomy 25, 5 and 6, that is the the, the Leverite marriage. The law of the Leverite marriage. And what it did was to, to produce offspring in a family line if an older brother died and was married and the younger brother was not married, the next brother in line, it was his responsibility to marry his brother's wife, he's gone now, to marry her, and to produce an offspring in the name of his brother. Now they didn't have to. There were loopholes. There were ways out of it. God was gracious with that. Just in case she was not so desirable. But that was the plan. Okay, It was laid out that way to protect the family line, to maintain the family line. Watch this. They continue on verse 20. There were seven brothers. And the first took a wife and died, leaving no children. So the second one married her and died, leaving behind no children. And the third likewise. And so all seven left no children. Last of all, the woman died also. Okay, so it's one bride for seven brothers. That's their story here. In the resurrection, when they rise again... Now wait a minute. They don't believe in the resurrection. In the resurrection, they say, when they rise again, which one's wife will she be? For all seven had married her. And they are fully making fun of resurrection. They're trying to poke holes in it. In this whole teaching that's that's really kind of silly. Sadducees believe that when you died, your soul died. That's it. You're done. I love Jesus' response. Jesus said to them, verse 24, Is this not the reason you are mistaken? (laughs) That you do not understand the Scriptures or the power of God. And that is the crippling issue among people who are losing faith today. There are those who understand the Scriptures, or think they do, but reject the power of God. There are those who embrace the power of God, but they shun the Scriptures. And in both cases, you're cutting yourself off. Jesus says to the Sadducees, you guys are both biblically illiterate and supernaturally inaccurate. In verse 25, He says, For when they rise from the dead, so He just confirms there is resurrection, they neither marry 
nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. I love this. Jesus schools the Sadducees on every point they don't believe. His answer, His one verse answer, touches on every area of of disbelief among the Sadducees. Now, before we get there, someone might say, hold it right there, especially the newlywed. Wait a minute. No marriage? No marriage after we die? What about my forever friend? What about my endless love? What about my soulmate? What happens? And to that newlywed, I'd say, you know, just give it time. (laughs) Now, Now, listen, I adore my wife, and I think most of you know that. I absolutely love Cheryl. I cannot imagine a life without her. I wouldn't want to be with anybody else. And I, I've often thought, if I ever were to lose her, I, I would, I'd just be, I'd just stay single. Because she, and I know that disappoints some of you younger women who just think maybe someday, but it's not going to happen. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. Hey, your laughter says it all. Thanks so much. <laughs> I cannot imagine not being with her. And so for me, when I think that when we get to heaven, there is no marriage, i got to take a double take. What does that mean? What does the Lord mean by this? Jesus doesn't say that there will be no intimacy. He doesn't say there's not going to be any more love. There's no more affection. There's no more closeness. All He says is there's no more marriage. What's he talking about? The institution of marriage is no longer necessary. The institution of marriage, as we see it, created, and as we talked about recently, created and defined by God as a one man to one woman, one flesh union for the purpose of being fruitful and multiplying, guess what? Obsolete in the kingdom. It's not necessary anymore. Will I know my spouse? Of course you will. Absolutely. Well, will I love her? Or, or, or ladies, will I, will I love him? Of course you will. In fact, my guess is you will probably love them more then than you do now. Because we're going to be in a place, gang, where intimacy is now at a whole new level. It's beyond anything that our flesh can even comprehend. It's just marriage itself, the institution. It's not necessary in the kingdom. It is not necessary on into eternity. We'll be in a totally new thing. Paul writes about the resurrection of the dead in 1 Corinthians 15.42 and he says the following. Listen to his description. It is sown a perishable body, okay, planted a perishable body, but raised up an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor, it's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, it's raised in power. It's sown a natural body. It's raised a spiritual body. He says if there's a natural body, there's also a spiritual. So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam, Jesus, is a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. And I know Paul starts to go off and we start to go, out, what? What do you mean? The natural came, the created man comes, 
But with that created man comes the breath, the Spirit of God that brings real life. And it is that real life that will continue on eternally glorified for those who die in faith in Jesus Christ. And Paul says, 1 Corinthians 14.47, or 15.47, The first man is from the earth, earthy. The second man, Jesus, is from heaven. Well, that's it, from heaven. Kind of like John the Baptist's baptism was from heaven. Kind of like Jesus' authority is from heaven. Because Jesus Himself is from heaven. What are you getting at, Rick? Simply this. Heaven is not just another version of earth. And a lot of us tend to think that perhaps it is. It's just earth nicer. It's earth 2.0. I'm looking forward to the upgrade. It is not an upgrade. It is a complete do-over. Eternity. I'm not talking about the millennial kingdom. The millennial kingdom is going to be earth 2.0. The millennial kingdom, the thousand year reign of Christ, earth upgraded. But at the end of that, following the judgment... We head into Revelation 21 and 22, the new heaven and the new earth from which the old earth flees away. That's what Peter's talking about when he says it's going to be destroyed by fire. There won't be any use for it. It will be obsolete because the new heaven, new Jerusalem, new earth, wow. And we can't imagine what that's going to be. It's not just a step up. It is a completely new thing. And yes, you want your spouse to be there. Of course, I hope you do. (laughs) If not, see Les or myself for counseling later. You want your spouse to be there, but the marriage part is obsolete, unnecessary. Now, watch this. Jesus uses the Torah, which remember, the Sadducees only believe in the Torah. So Jesus goes right to the heart of Torah to give them a little more of a lesson in their unbelief. He goes to Exodus chapter 3, verse 26. Watch this. Verse 26 of Mark 12. There we are. But regarding the fact that the dead rise again. And you see what Jesus just did. He redirected. They're trying to get this marriage question. They're trying to trip him up. And he goes, okay, first of all, whatever. But let's talk about the real issue, resurrection. That's your real problem here. Because if you understood resurrection, you wouldn't be asking about marriage. Regarding the fact that the dead rise again, have you not read in the book of Moses? Uh Uh-oh. Now he's speaking their language. Now he's talking their book. In the passage about the burning bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And I can't help but imagine Jesus let it kind of hang there for a minute. As they're looking at him, and he says... He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are greatly mistaken. What does that mean? What's He saying? God could not have said to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, unless Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob still existed. If they were dead, He would have said to Moses, I was the God of Abraham. I was the God of Isaac. I was the God of Jacob. These patriarchs from 400 years before Moses still existed. Their bodies were dead and buried in the cave of Machpelah. But their spirits were still absolutely in existence. And Jesus goes right to the midst of Torah and He says, Okay, Sadducees, I'll prove it with your own book. 
with the only book that you'll accept. Listen, God is the God of the living. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who are still living. There has to be a resurrection. Or God wouldn't have said that in the first place. Dead in the flesh? Absolutely. But alive in the Spirit. Listen to this verse. Hebrews 11, verse 39. All of these, talking about men and women of faith, listed throughout Hebrews 11. All of these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. What does that mean? It means they are going to be made perfect along with us. Which means all of those patriarchs are still in existence, just waiting for the moment when they are perfected with us. What is that moment? Rapture. The glorification. When the dead in Christ will rise. And God will bring with Him the spirits of those who have fallen asleep. And they will be glorified. And we who are alive at that time will also be raised and we will meet them in the air. And so we shall ever be with the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 14. Paul says in Romans 14.7, Not one of us lives for himself. Not one of us dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that He might be both Lord of the dead and of the living. So all that to say, gang, resurrection is absolutely real. It is coming. It will happen. Be heavenly minded. Be heavenly minded. As believers in Jesus Christ, focus on eternity and not just to steer the conversation that way with non-believers. You focus on eternity for your own heart. For your own passion. Because we are looking for something altogether different, altogether better. Hebrews 11.16, as it is, they desire a better country. That is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them. Wow. Why were the Sadducees so greatly mistaken? Why did they miss all of that? How could they not see that? Because they didn't know the Scriptures. All the Scriptures. They limited themselves only to those Scriptures that they felt comfortable with. That they felt they could prove. And so they rejected all the others. And I would say to you, and to myself tonight, we don't have that option. We accept all of God's Word or we accept none of God's Word. The whole thing. The whole counsel of the Word of God. We need all of the Scriptures. They didn't know all the Scriptures. And they also didn't know the power of God. If we accept the Scriptures and we reject the power of God, we will be dry and lifeless. If we accept the power of God and we reject the Scriptures, we will be out of control. We need both. Both. And and less... Back me up on this. From the very beginning of the bridge, we said two things matter. The Spirit and the Word. Those two things. The Spirit and the Word. We need both to function. Without the Scriptures, there's no anchor for truth. Without the power of God, no assurance that it's going to happen. Run short on either area and we end up like the Sadducees, both sad and greatly mistaken. Verse 28. Exit the Sadducees. Enter an individual man, one of the scribes. He came and heard them arguing and recognizing that he had answered them well, asked him, 
What commandment is the foremost of all? Now, I like this guy. I'm just going to tell you right up front. This guy's coming from a different place, and you'll see why. What is the what commandment is the foremost of all? And Jesus answered, The foremost is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. It's Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. It's called the Shema, which means the hearing. Hear, O Israel, love the Lord your God. That's it. That's A number one, Jesus says. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Leviticus 19.18 There is no other commandment greater than these. And in one quick answer, one brief answer, immediate and on the fly, Jesus sums up the first and the second tables of the Ten Commandments. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Matthew adds in Matthew 22.40 that Jesus said, on these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. There it is. Want to follow me? Love God. Love your neighbor as yourself. You do those, everything else falls into place. You don't do those, and everything else becomes incredibly problematic. Verse 32, the scribe said to him, Right, teacher! Or... I think, right on. (laughs) You have truly stated that He is one. And there's no one else besides Him. And to love Him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbors oneself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. I like this guy. He's not bantering. He's not fighting. I think he's truly asking an honest question And when Jesus saw that he had answered intelligently, verse 34, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. After that, no one would venture to ask him any more questions. This is one inspector who honestly may have been questioning out of searching. Really wanted to know. He's hearing, he's watching Jesus. And Jesus is answering the detractors and the opponents and the enemies. And it it had to be taxing. It had to be exhausting. It had to be frustrating. But this guy was listening. When you're sharing the gospel with someone, when they are fighting back, when they're negative, when they're cantankerous, there may be someone else listening to the very gospel you're sharing. And you may not get through to the person who's being a critic, but there may be someone else paying attention like this scribe. He listens to the whole thing, the chief priests come, and the Pharisees and the Herodians and the Sadducees, and this guy's just sitting there watching Jesus and going, this guy's flawless. Okay, I have a question. Lord, what about this? And Jesus answers beautifully. It stirs in this man's heart, and he is within reach of the kingdom. Why is he within reach of the kingdom? Because he is in agreement with Jesus Christ. Live your life in agreement with Jesus Christ and it will put you within reach of the kingdom. Give your life to Jesus Christ and you're in. Now, someone might hear this and say, okay, if it's all about love, Mark 12, 29 and 30, Matthew 22, verses 38 through 40, if it's all about love, love God, love your neighbor, love God, love your neighbor, then let's just toss out our Bibles, throw out so-called righteousness, 
Go ahead and let's redefine morality. Let's redefine marriage. Let's not worry about these nitpicky little things that separate us. Let's just love. Because obviously it's all about love, so let's just be loving, because in the end, as Rob Bell puts it, love wins. Right? Why not just go that route? Hmm. Note this. Don't miss this. The first and foremost commandment is what? Love God. That's where you start. Love God. Period. Above and beyond loving your neighbor. That doesn't mean you don't love your neighbor, but you love God first. That means you put His interests, obviously, definitely ahead of your own, but also ahead of your neighbor's. It's God's interests first. It's God's concerns first. I love Him first. It is out of the love relationship I have with God that I am able to even love my neighbors. That love flows out into my love for other people. But the first commandment, the first commandment is love God. What did Jesus say in John 14, 15? If you love me, you will what? Keep my commandments. That's why we are concerned about righteousness. That's why we seek to define things the way God does in His Word, not the way man wants to. Because if you love me, he says, you will keep my commandments. John 14, 23. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Not as proof of love, but as an outflow of love. The more I love Jesus, the more I'm like, Jesus, whatever you say, I want to do. Whatever your word tells me, I'm in. He says, my father will love him and we will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words. How do you know someone doesn't really love Jesus? They're doing their own thing. He says, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. You can't be any more clear about this, Jesus. Understand, you cannot say you love God and reject His word. Can't do it. If you say, well, I'll let John tell you. The one who says, I have come to know Him and does not keep His commandments, is a liar. (laughs) And the truth is not in Him. But whoever keeps His Word, in Him the love of God has truly been perfected. And by this we know that we are in Him. The one who says He abides in Him ought Himself to walk in the same manner as Jesus walked. That's how you know someone loves God. Because they naturally want to do what God calls them to do. The entire Jewish law and the prophets hang on loving God. And the more you love Him, the more you're going to hang on His Word. His every word. So here we are. The priests have prodded, the Pharisees and Herodians inspected, the Sadducees have now scrutinized, and even this scribe studied Jesus. He's been inspected. And they can find no fault. Did it lead to faith? No. At least not in most of these guys. But it did shut their mouths and it did prove that the Lamb was perfect without spot or defect. And now Jesus turns around and He asks the final question of them that I think finalizes the inspection. Verse 35. And Jesus began to say, as He taught in the temple, How is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the Son of David? David himself says in the Holy Spirit, and he quotes Psalm 110, verse 1, 
the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So in what sense is he his son? And the large crowd enjoyed listening to him. And I imagine half the crowd didn't have a clue what he was talking about. They just thought it was so amazing. This guy is just brilliant. Do you know what he said? No, but he's great to listen to. I get that sometimes. <laughs> I encourage you, if you want to if you want to check this out, understand this a little more, go to the study we did on Psalm 110, because it is absolutely astounding. The Lord said to my Lord, David writes. In the Hebrew, Yahweh said to Adonai. I thought Yahweh was Adonai. He is. What? So David overhears a conversation between God and God. Between Yahweh and Adonai. And Yahweh says to Adonai, one figure of the Godhead, one representation to the other, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. What a conundrum. It's it's inexplicable. It's unexplainable except in Jesus, who is both before David and after David. And that's the only way that that verse, Psalm 110, could even be explained or understood. God said to God, hang out here with me until I prepare this for you. It's an absolutely amazing statement and it's revealed even more clearly in Revelation 22.16 where Jesus says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David. I am before David. That is, David comes from me. I am the Lord Adonai. And I am the descendant of David. That is, I am the son of David. I am the Messiah. Adonai is Messiah. Messiah is Adonai. Jesus is God in the flesh. And Jesus launches this question out to them. In what sense is is this Lord His Son? And the crowd is absolutely amazed. They're stunned. And only Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, can be both Adonai and Mashiach. And that encapsulates the whole week of inspections as Jesus makes it clear, I'm the guy. I am Him. Verse 38, in His teaching He was saying, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like respectful greetings in the marketplaces and chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at the banquets who devour widows' houses and for appearances' sake offer long prayers. These will receive a greater condemnation. Wow. When you realize how underhanded the scribes were to whom Jesus is referring here, you're going to understand even more how their fruit was nothing more than stink berries. The issue was that these teachers of Israel knew better. And no doubt, this is what James has in mind when he writes in James 3.1, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such, we will incur a stricter judgment. And that verse terrifies me. That verse, by the way, is one of the reasons why I determined I'm just going to teach the Bible and not try and come up with stuff to teach. Because I am under a stricter judgment simply by attempting 
as, as a somewhat boneheaded human to teach the Word of God. I am under a stricter judgment. The scribes should have known better. They were the teachers. They were in the Word. They should have known better than the long robes and respectful greetings and seats in the synagogue and honored place of honor at banquets. And they certainly should have known better as to how they treated the widows. The widows. And, verse 41, and, Kai, in the Greek, we've talked about this word, it connects what just happened to what's about to happen. It's a conjunction. So the next story does not sit by itself. The next story Mark intends to connect to what we just read. Listen to this. And he sat down opposite the treasury and began observing how the people were putting money into the treasury and many rich people were putting in large sums. A poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, the Greek word is lepta, which amount to a cent or a, uh, a quadrans. A lepta and a quadrans is basically the equivalent of one sixty-fourth, some of your margins will say this, one sixty-fourth of a denarius, which is one day's wage. What she put in here was the equivalent of one sixty-fourth of what you made today. Not much. Okay, a tiny amount. Calling his disciples to him. He said to them, "Truly I say to you, this poor widow put more in all put in more than all the contributors to the treasury." Notice that she didn't put in more than the one who put in the most. She put in more than all of them combined. The entire draw that day, this woman's paltry two cents was worth more to Jesus than everything that went into the trumpets. They were called trumpets. There were thirteen of them lined up along the wall, and they were boxes in essence, that the people would put their money in for the treasury, the temple treasury. So she goes up to the trumpets. They're all lined up there. They're putting in their money and she puts in her two cents worth and Jesus goes, wow. Did you see how much she put in there? Two cents. Amazing. Because they all, verse 44, put in out of their surplus, but she out of her poverty put in all she owned, all she had to live on. Great fodder for a sermon on giving. This is a, this is a good one for that. And if you give faithfully, stories like this, when a pastor starts to preach about giving and tithing and making sure in your faithfulness of your giving, starts preaching and talking about the widow's might, the widow's offering, the widow's two cents. You'll love stories like this if you're a faithful giver. If you're stingy, if you don't give, or if you give very little, stories like this make you think, Pastor Rick, if you could just go ahead and finish up so we can get out of here tonight, we'd appreciate that. Fair enough. I won't deal with that tonight. We'll deal with it on Sunday. (laughs) We're going to talk about this on Sunday. It's been a while since we've talked about giving. So I'm giving you a fair warning. Don't show up on Sunday if you are not a giver and it makes you uncomfortable to hear about giving. But show up Sunday... If you want to understand giving from the perspective, not of the church's needs, but of faith, we're going to talk about that. But i got to tell you one last thing before we finish here. The reason why I believe Mark connects this story of the widow's giving with his warnings against the scribes who are ripping off the widows 
is simply this. There is a stunning contrast between this poor widow and Jesus' pretentious critics of the entire chapter before. We look at her and the amount of faith that she expresses in her simple behavior, and we contrast that to everything that we've seen out of the Sadducees and the Pharisees and Herodians and the chief priests and the scribes tonight. And it is night and day. There's only one way that this poor widow woman could give all that she had to live on. Note that she had two coins. And she gave them both. She had every right to give one and then hang on to the other so she could go get some lunch for crying out loud. It was all she had. And she puts all of it in and it blows Jesus away. And the only way she could do that, the only way anyone could ever give all that they have to live on, is they have to know that they live on the grace of God. When you know, when I know that my life is by His good grace, that everything I have, including my paycheck, I didn't build that. No, I think that's an appropriate use of the phrase. My small business, yeah, God provided that for you. My paycheck today, God gave that to you. My income, my salary, I work hard. God gave you the ability to work. He gave you the mind to do it. He gave you the creativity. He gave you the income. You wouldn't have anything if He hadn't given it to you. And somehow we've got to grasp that mentality. And if we did, we really wouldn't worry about what's going on in Congress right now. Alright? Call the ball, guys. God provides for me. Raise my taxes. Whatever. God provides for me. The government doesn't provide for me. And anyone in here, if you are receiving government support, and I'm not opposed to that, but if you are, guess what? It's not because of the government you're receiving it. It's because God saw fit to give it to you that way. And I'm already preaching Sunday morning. I didn't mean to. (laughs) She knew that she lived on the grace of God, and so she could freely give all that she had, knowing God provided this two cents. He'll provide the next meal. He'll provide the next day. He'll provide the next clothing. The next shelter. He's got it. Seek first the kingdom and His righteousness and all these things will be provided as well. So her mentality here compared to the fault finders. Listen to this. The fault finders do nothing but question and scrutinize. The faithful accept the will of God without question. The fault finder if he or she does give, give out of their plenty. The faithful give out of their lack. It should be completely opposite. I I don't have enough to give this month. Better write a bigger check. The fault finders misunderstand both the Scriptures and the power of God. The faithful trust both. The fault finders are never satisfied. The faithful are always thankful. Which one are you? Are you a critic? Are you a scrutinizer? Are you a fault finder? Or are you among the faithful? And we're going to talk about that more on Sunday. Let's pray. Father, Your Word is ever challenging me just this week. And even though my brothers and sisters don't realize that I've gone through this week concerns and, and, and more teaching from You on the area of provision. 
I am so grateful to You, Lord, that You see the needs and You provide far beyond anything we can ask or imagine. And I pray tonight, even as we close the book, that our hearts will remain open to Your Spirit as You teach us and train us to be faithful servants and not fault finders and not scrutinizers and not questioners and not fearful and doubtful and and all the things that we see, Lord, in the Jewish leadership there in Mark 12. We want to be like this widow. Simply trusting in You and believing You for all things. I pray, Father, for the Bridge Fellowship. This has already, Lord, been a remarkably generous fellowship. I have been amazed over the years watching how people give out of their lack, watching how people give when we don't even talk about it. They give when we don't pass plates. They just, they just give because it's a decision made between them and You. And I applaud that and I praise Your name for Your generosity through Your people and in Your people. But I do pray this, Father the beginning now and continuing on into Sunday and after, that You will challenge and convict us as a body to take a deeper step, a further step in faithfulness and in trusting You in all things. May it be done by the power of Your Spirit and by the strength of Your Word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.